0: Welcome to Regulate Tech. This is our 11th episode of the year with me Niklas Lundblad, and with me Richard Allen. Excellent. So, uh, there's been a there's been a lot of talk about um, a small messaging service with around 145 million daily users. That's, you know, hardly enough to get venture capital anymore in in Silicon Valley. Uh, but the name of the service happens to be Twitter and it's being acquired. So, so tell us what the brouhaha is about, Richard. Yeah.
1: So the um, well, well, I, I think the brouhaha partly depends on personality, um, because the, you know the man who's buying or uh, has has raised the funds and is trying to complete a purchase of Twitter is Elon Musk, who is uh, a very prominent public figure. So it's partly just, you know, anything that Elon Musk touches it is going to create brouhaha and noise. I think I think most of those 145 million daily users are followers of his. So so he's kind of speaking to his own audience there. And and then partly there's a more substantive question, which is, look, what direction is this platform going to go in uh, if he does manage to take it over? Because if he takes it private, I mean, he'll be beholden to his bankers, but he's not beholden to the markets in the classic sense. And he will have a lot more latitude to, to do things with or to Twitter and its users than than a normal you know, publicly listed company might have where they, they have a fiduciary duty to their shareholders and they tend to be more cautious. So that's put onto the table lots of different things about where he may go with the business model, with the rules around speech. Uh, so lots of questions which he himself is feeding with regular pronouncements about Where is Twitter going to go once it becomes a private company, assuming that does happen, run by this idiosyncratic, well-known public figure, Elon Musk?
0: Ah, yes, that sets us up for an interesting discussion and and certainly has, has put him in the public eye um, to the extent that I saw that he was invited today or if it was yesterday to come to the UK Parliament and explain his plans. Isn't that right?
1: That's right. Yeah. So they, they want him to go. And it'd be, again, interesting for me as a professional observer, having 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 sort of sat uh, next to Mark Zuckerberg's empty chair, and we've talked about it in previous episodes around committee hearings that look for, for Mark Zuckerberg. Um, certainly, my recommendation was never that he, he should necessarily come in front of the committees because there's a lot of risk involved. We've talked through all of that. I suspect Elon Musk has a different risk appetite, and again, because he's not, we're not talking about a publicly listed company, uh, he may think, "Oh, I'll I'll just come to the UK Parliament and tell them what I think and shoot from the hip," and that would be an interesting session. So let let's see. It's a kind of early indication of how he intends to do things. If he if he says no, that that suggests bit like recommendations we've made that he, he thinks is a distraction from the main event. If he says yes, then it tells us he perhaps wants to be more of a showman with this thing and and just come yeah. and have a platform and, and tell everybody what he thinks. I think the early indications was that he,
0: he thought it was slightly premature to do it now. He wanted the deal to close first, but certainly did not exclude the opportunity to or the option. So So let's see where that ends up. Now, one of the things that, that um, he has said is that he he believes that Twitter has um, restricted content uh, far too much uh, in his view. And, and there are a couple of different things here. The, there's, there's one strain of thought or sort of one analysis that says that, OK, what Elon Musk is going to try to do is to bring Twitter back to the days when it described itself as the free speech wing of the free speech party. Uh, quite an aggressive rhetoric <laughs> at the time. Um, do, do you think that is what's in the cards, that he wants to, to, to turn back time and, and go back to you know, the, the old, more cyber-libertarian view of free speech?
1: I mean, he, That would be completely cutting across the direction of travel from policymakers over the last few years, and actually the direction of travel of all the platforms. As they've become more societally important the pressure has been on them to, to you know, deal with things that are believed to be socially harmful. And that, there's a whole range of different things from election interference through to fake news, through to anti-vax content, through to hate speech. And all of those have been present on on all of the platforms, including Twitter. And, and the pressure is clearly there. And it's expressed in legislation in the UK and the EU uh, and the Online Safety Bill and the Digital Services Act. You know, there's a very clear shift towards saying let's take more control of these platforms and and get them to do more to tidy up what we deem to be harmful speech. In the US, that's not expressed in legislative terms, but it's certainly there. There's, a, there's a, you know, a lot of pressure on the platforms, again, to deal with things that people see as inherently harmful. So that's the direction of travel that I think they've all been going in, even platforms like Reddit and others that were known as very, very permissive, you can see that they've shifted they they have a bigger trust and safety team and more of a focus on that they may not be getting rid of all the speech but they they're being more considerate or careful about how they manage speech speech on their platforms so i think the question really for for what elon musk is saying is okay, is he is he saying thus far and no further or is he literally saying let's roll back some of the you know attempts that have been made in order to to manage speech better And if he's saying roll back, then he is swimming in the opposite direction to the tide. And we all know uh, how that can be. Uh, Swimming opposite to the tide is a towering business and and you risk getting swept away and drowned. And so question, you know, is Elon Musk strong enough to swim against the tide? Should he attempt to do that Or, or will the tide sweeping him away? And the tide is, I say, absolutely clearly in favor of, I think, platforms doing more to restrict speech, not doing less to restrict speech. And You could
0: even see some early flags of this when Thierry Breton, the commissioner, uh, gave an interview in which he said, Elon, we have rules here. I think that was more or less the quote, and uh, you have to obey them if you want to be in the European market. Uh, raising the, the the specter of a ban from the European market if he did not comply with the rules in, for example, the Digital Services Act. So, So there seems to be some tension and friction there. But there's another analysis that you can apply to what he has been saying. And uh, you know, we can apply lots of different kinds of analysis to what he's been saying because there's there's a rich, it's a rich uh, amount of, of content there. But another thing that he has been saying is is that he would like to transform Twitter into something new. And there are two components to this new model that has been floated in some of his tweets. One, I think, is is fundamentally uh, very much different from where we were back in the 1990s and that is the idea that he wants to authenticate all human beings on the planet essentially he i think he put that like that and said he wants to authenticate everyone so everyone would be verified and speak under their own name in twitter that would be that's that's not rolling back to the free speech wing of the free speech party is it
1: well, well, I mean that's very much um, in line with with you know where governments like the UK are going. They would love to see that. I think the, the UK and the European Union. Well, the European Union would be more mixed because they they certainly uh, I think have some uh, issues around privacy and authentication. But the UK, yes, if they if. Uh, Twitter suddenly authenticate everyone that's actually one of the strands of, of the online safety bill is to try and encourage platforms to do more to authenticate people in the hope that that will limit limit uh, some of the harmful speech so from a free speech point of view Authentication, I mean people will argue it both ways. I think you quoted uh, uh, before, is it Simone de Beauvoir who kind of said, you know, you should be allowed to say whatever you want to say as long no, as you're yes. yes. sorry, Simon <laughs> he said you should be able to say yeah. uh, whatever you want to say as long as you say it under your own identity. So arguably, you know, Elon Musk could say, Look, I'm I'm absolutely going in the free speech direction by saying uh, you, you know, I'm gonna require you to authenticate, but having authenticated, you can say what you want to say now. That in the US context potentially still is quite permissive of speech because the US allows a broad range of speech. So you could you could in the US authenticate under your own name and and spout the vilest hate speech possible and still not be at risk of prosecution because it's not illegal in the US. Now the same applied in Europe is a real problem. And and actually the reason that governments like the UK would like people to self or authenticate. Uh, is that they believe that once they've authenticated, they will self-censor because they will be worried about breaking the law and getting prosecuted. So so this authentication thing will work very differently in the US and, and the UK, for example. In the US, yes, authentication, you can argue, is independent of speech because the speech is legal. I don't know if people you know would change their behavior if they're more identifiable, but certainly they they will know that nothing can happen to them in terms of the police coming to the door. Once you've authenticated in a country like the UK or in Europe but actually a country like Germany where you know speech laws can be very restrictive, then that has huge speech implications because there's a whole range of speech you're now going to be nervous about issuing uh, in case it results in a prosecution
0: yes and and it is it's quite the turn away also from from the early internet view of anonymity as essential to the kind of freedom that the internet presented anonymity preserving technologies like encryption etc have been woven into this narrative that, that this is a place where you can start anew where you don't have to come with all of the luggage of your old offline identity you can try out new identities you can try out new uh, uh, pseudo so, so pseudonymous, um, uh, uh, existences and and, um, and develop your own uh, understanding of the world through that but, but authenticating everyone would create a very specific public sphere, at least, with some accountability. The other thing that he has said that I thought was interesting and hasn't been picked up that much is that he said he thought Twitter should be a protocol rather than a, a service. Uh, yeah. And you can read this in many different ways, but what do you think he is, what's sort of in his mind there if we if we do a little bit of Elon Musk psychology?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I wondered the, the other thing that he's very famous for is being very interested in cryptocurrencies and and so you can kind of see, I could just see a, there's a general shift to, towards this sort of notion that we create these structures that are independent of governments. So a lot of the appeal of crypto is we want to supposedly liberate ourselves from these banking systems and things. And and I could see a, uh, perhaps a philosophy for me, it's quite a libertarian philosophy or an anti-government philosophy that says, let's make Twitter an, a, a, an infrastructure for authentication and other things. And you can imagine somebody who's, now using Twitter as their communications infrastructure. They're using Twitter authentication instead of government IDs and things like that. And they're using cryptocurrencies instead of fiat currencies. And I just wonder if there's there's some sort of mix there where he's looking at this as a, a way of creating this alternative uh, infrastructure that is independent and outside government. and And for that to be the case... You have to say, uh, like a lot of the cryptocurrencies, you know, these are their their um, protocols as opposed to being entirely in the control of an individual company. So you, I just think there may be something that's sort of lining up there in his mind, and from a government point of view, that's again, intriguing. Yeah, yeah. It, I mean, it cuts right across where no, governments are going. I, to I, go. you know, yeah, well, I do want to dig into, into that, that a
0: bit because there's. There's something there that I think is really intriguing because what you're saying is that he might just have bought Twitter to turn it into the biggest crypto exchange <laughs> on the internet uh, where people could be authenticated and they could exchange views as well as exchange different kinds of financial tokens. Um, so he would have bought the network and then uh, slowly turned it into this vehicle for for finance, essentially.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and as I say, in creating a world, I think there is a... There's a kind of libertarian uh, position, a silicate classic almost, Silicon Valley libertarian position, which mm-hmm. says, Let, "Let's get rid of those weary giants of steel and flesh. Let's liberate ourselves from it." And and everything that Elon Musk does, you kind of and says, you feel he's got that mindset. And so, Twitter may be a vehicle heavily subsidized
0: by the government, though one would note.
1: Yes, yes, yeah, heavily subsidized, yeah. certainly in terms of uh, uh, some of his, the stuff that he's built. But but again, I mean, interestingly, that say, first it cuts across where governments are going. He could then try and position Twitter as, you know, the, all of these other, you know, schmucks, the Facebooks and the Googles and people, they're all now, you know, towing the line and signed up to all the government regulation. And I've created something that's kind of outside of that and independent. The challenge he faces is, though, is if you look at the legislation, he's not going to be given that option, or Twitter will not be given that option unless it radically re-engineers itself into something different. As long as Twitter, in UK terms, meets the definition of a user-to-user service, Twitter is going to have to pay money to the UK regulator, and under the DSA, to the European Commission. And the European Commission and the UK regulator Ofcom are going to have the right to give Twitter directions about a whole range of different things they do within their business. You know, he, he may decide, I want everyone to authenticate. Well, the UK government is going to decide whether or not that authentication is sufficient. <laughs> and if it's not, they're going to tell them to do it differently. And again, everything about Elon tells you, that I don't think he's going to be too excited about paying a government bureaucrat to tell him how to design his service. But that's absolutely the world that You know, it's there in black and white. You can see that's where we're heading. Um, So, again, really interesting set of questions whether ultimately he will back down. And if he is running it and say, fine, do what you like, or whether he would try and re-engineer the service to try and get it outside of the definitions or say, I'm not going to offer my service in those countries who are stupid enough to bring in these stupid laws, which, again, is very if you followed you know, his sort of arguments around California and COVID and shutting down his Tesla factories, that's pretty much what he said then. It's like, yo, you California's a stupid, I'll, I'll go to Texas. So again, consistent with that, maybe Twitter will be the first major service that says I'm pulling out of the UK and European markets. And- uh, which
0: would be interesting given that only around 15 to perhaps 20% of its users are in the US. Yeah. So it would be a fairly heavy reduction of, of usage, I think. But the other thing about protocols is that you can imagine him we can almost imagine this working like uh, the old news servers worked, a federated system of servers that are open sourced and run some kind of messaging protocol in a, for lack of a better term, peer-to-peer-like fashion. Yeah. And then there is no central company anymore. Yeah. There, is no, there is no there there for the DSA or the on- Online uh, Safety Act. So is that something that you think he's been considering when he talks about the protocol level as,
1: as where Twitter should go? yeah so that sort of twitter becomes mastodon uh, uh, in some way which is though if people aren't familiar it's a peer to peer sort of information sharing service is often touted or cited as a as an alternative to twitter um but depends on federated service i mean you know, he could he could go there, there there's well, I guess there is a business left. Again, if the business develops in terms of we're giving you an authentication service and the authentication service is central and and viable and has some kind of revenue stream and people are paying a subscription to be a, an authenticated user, then I guess there's still some <clears throat> some business left, even if all the action takes place at a federated level where you're no longer able to control it. Um so that's one possible model. I have to say though that, you know, the online safety bill does not have a de minimis provision uh, as yet for the servers that will be caught. And he said, you know, at the moment, the estimate is around 25,000 services. So I guess there'll be some that are too small. But if your service is targeted at the UK and has a significant number of UK users, you know, they want you to be in scope. So somebody who was running a federated server uh, using the Twitter protocol, that person whoever whichever entity is running that federated server if they're servicing UK users they're still going to be subject to the requirements of the online safety bill different requirements for smaller platforms but still you know quite material requirements so in that world it may be twitter the central authenticator avoids responsibility for all this user content enforcement stuff but the the organizations running the individual federated servers will still be caught within european and, and uk legislation unless
0: they're decentralized to the user level where every user runs in you know in conjunction with its messaging service a small version of that server so it's sort of completely decentralized that's that's uh that's something that that i think would raise a very different kind of discussion with governments and that is how decentralized will they allow a platform to become is yeah. there a lower bound of decentralization beyond which which people will sort of start to raise their hand and say this won't yeah. work.
1: I mean, that's an interesting one for for lawyers. I mean, a platform of one, I think, hardly qualifies as a platform. <laughs> so so <laughs> you, you imagine the lawyer saying, "You're you're no longer a now you're a sender. Now you're a publisher." Actually, having said yeah. that, you then become an individual publisher <laughs> um, rather than a rather than a platform at all. So yes, you're right. There are some architectures that go all that way. Um, that would be super radical, but as I say the, feder- the federated model, where there's still an aggregation, I think is still clearly user to user. You're facilitating communications off some users with other users. Uh, if it's just you communicating, I think you are in a different world. You're you're and then the individual end user.
0: And we might end up in a world where uh, where we where we see similarities with the way that the BitTorrent protocol works. That you have a search engine that centralizes some way to find the torrents, and that then becomes the point of control. For example, even if the so, torrents are highly distributed, there's there's a, so the protocol path is is one that will be interesting to keep track of. Um, so just just generally, um, the the obvious big question that everyone has been talking about is whether or not. Donald Trump should return to the Mm. platform, Um, and it's you know especially now that's an interesting question. Now he's he's been negative, right? He doesn't want to return. No, no, he he
1: said he wants to keep boosting his own platform, uh, Truth Social, and I think and it's going to be
0: called Truthing. I understand. Truthing, truthing. right? Uh, Truthing.
1: Yeah, Yeah. which which means by definition the thing is truthful. That's all you need. Uh, Yes, I say it's true, therefore it is true. It's a kind of interesting. Interesting twist, um, but no. I think he said he doesn't want to go back. And again, I think the other, the other sort of unfinished business is look, whether you know social media platforms are ultimately going to end up like newspapers in Europe or TV news stations in the US, having a very clear political bias and becoming homes for people either from the left or from the right, but very rarely from both. Um, and clearly with t- True Social, you know, the intention of Donald Trump is is to create a conservative Twitter, if you can put it that way. Um, and then the question becomes, you know, the, the original notion of a Twitter and a Facebook was it's neither conservative nor liberal. It's for everyone. Uh, and I think what you've seen has been a lot of tension. And the Donald Trump banning was a classic example of where people say, well, if you ban Donald Trump, therefore you are now liberal Twitter or liberal Facebook. Therefore, we must go and build conservative Twitter or conservative Facebook and conservative Twitter originally was Parler, I guess, was the one that everyone was going to. But Donald mm. Trump's clearly said, look, he he wants to build conservative, uh, conservative Twitter as true social. I don't think there's any pretense that it's appealing to, to liberals. Uh, he knows his constituency. Question then, you know, does Elon Musk, if he gets hold of Twitter, does he say... I'm going to make it a liberal Twitter or a conservative Twitter or a libertarian Twitter or whatever. Does he does he sort of feel comfortable? Or is he going to try and sustain universality? And sustaining universality is frankly as what's been giving these big platforms the, the biggest headaches, at least in the US, because mm. trying to maintain universality is what's left them getting slammed from both sides. Conservatives think they're said, too censorious, and liberals yeah. think they're not censorious enough.
0: Yeah, yeah. The the only thing he said on that is that he thinks that success means that the you know the the ten percent most extreme on the left and on the right should be equally unhappy with yeah. the service and the content moderation offered. So that that seems yeah, to I, indicate that he is looking for universality. It, it raises an interesting question, though. I mean, truth. So if Truth Social um, becomes available in the UK would that mean that Ofcom would have to make judgments about Truth Social's content moderation practices? And if they do, they would be making judgments about the content of a clearly politically biased uh, service, but sort of one that's intentionally so. Um, How does that work, do you think?
1: Yeah, I mean, if it is a user-to-user service offering people the ability to uh, exchange content with each other, and if it is directed towards a significant number of people in the United Kingdom, absolutely they will have to pay money to Ofcom and be regulated by Ofcom if that's what they want. So I, again, this is a really interesting example. They may be one of the first services to say no, thank you. We'll we'll just geo block people from the UK from accessing our service mm. um, because that would be you know, the logical logical kind of path for them to follow if they don't believe they should be regulated by a, a foreign entity. Of course, the regulation would only be in respect of the UK users. And we should be clear about that. But they would then what have to engineer some way of having different rules for the subset of UK users. And frankly, if, if the UK is not their target market, they may say, you know, Hang that, and and UK users just use a VPN. Like we're gonna we're gonna block it, so we don't have to be formally part of the thing. But if you're a arch republican living in the UK, just get yourself a VPN, and then you can play <laughs> all you like on it under US rules.
0: What if they were to provide the service? So this is I'm rat hauling on this a bit because yeah, yeah, I think it's fascinating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What if they were to provide a service outside of the US that was read-only? Uh, no, read-only. That's that a really be a little question. bit like being able to see Fox News in the UK, right? But it's read only. Rest of the world, read only.
1: Yeah, if you were not able to interact with it, that's a really interesting. Oh, it's so good. It right, is a right, really go back, interesting question,
0: isn't
1: it? Yeah, You go back and look at the definitions, but because the definitions really do focus on this, you know. The, the, well, there is a notion of where you may encounter content, but. But uh, that, you know, so, so it talked about encountering content. Uh, I was walking down the internet in a northerly direction when I encountered some hate speech. It's kind of, it's like, oh, it's sort of, so there is this notion of encounter, you know, people, people just sort of stumble upon it because they do want to capture uh, that phenomenon. But but to even be in scope at all, you have to have been offering a user to user service. So what, what I'm not sure about is if the definition will say, look, you are offering a user to user service because it's used to user somewhere else and UK users can still encounter it, therefore you're in scope or if it if the definitions would have to be that that the UK users have to be able to access it as a user to user service before it even you know anything kicks in. So I think I'm going to get back to the definitions and have a look you've asked, you've asked a really interesting question. Yes,
0: I think I think that would be fascinating to know more about and I also think it would be interesting because it would it would highlight a few of the other um, tensions there which is, you know, um, how can you regulate another country's citizens and if if you can watch their political debate but not participate in it then you tend to sort of solve a couple of adjacent problems as well around election integrity etc cetera, etc. Cetera. So the the read only option might be um at least to to something like trof- social that has a, a political bent uh, and an appetizing appetizing idea. Um, so so we have Elon Musk buying Twitter. We the deal hasn't gone through completely yet. There's a lot of questions open, and it it is worthwhile asking if it's just twitter we're focusing on or if the reason that we have spent so much time as a society debating this is that we're at this inflection point where we really feel the need to understand free expression free speech much more closely is twitter becomes sort of a focal point for that discussion do you think
1: i I think it has i mean i I think it's really interesting because um you know i I have this experience working at um facebook that that there there was an expectation different expectations are placed on different platforms, and there was an assumption I think for m- most of the time I was there that that Facebook was more family oriented and therefore had to apply a different standard from uh Twitter and Twitter was seen as more and a professional discerning audience, and therefore they could tolerate. A slightly wilder environment, and then again, you take a platform like Reddit, and it's it's wilder again. So there there is a, a different set of expectations you get from policymakers for different platforms. And Twitter is is sort of become emblematic precisely because it, the expectations were high in favor of free speech. Uh, mm-hmm. And therefore, that then it becomes the real sort of focal point. It's, and around twenty
0: five percent of the verified users are journalists, so it it does have that profile that you describe. Sorry, go go on.
1: Yeah, no, no. So, I was actually going to make the point is exactly that it's it is both the fact that that we have that expectation and the fact that that the people who use it it tends to be very heavily used by what we might call influencers. It, uh, uh, in the yeah. political policy sense, not in the uh, fashion sense, uh, but influences in the political policy world, journalists, politicians are are very, very heavy users of Twitter.
0: It's, it's worth mentioning <laughs> that if you look at usage patterns at Twitter, at least the, the US part of Twitter, some research seems to suggest that around 10% of the users write 80% of the tweets. That's right. So it's a heavy power law uh, distribution along the, the users who are there. So it's, it is to some degree it's replicating a, a broadcast medium,
1: right? Exactly, and that, and that again I think is a crucial difference that most of the other social media that we're talking about, or certainly to date, um, has has tended to be narrowcast. Uh, so so it's, it's got broader over time, but certainly Facebook is quite narrow cast and there's so classic social media and Snapchat is used narrow cast. Actually, people, like Instagram has some broadcasters on it. A lot of people use it in a very narrow cast way and they use the messaging service and so on uh youtube arguably was more broadcast from the outset and tiktok is more broadcast um but still there'll be a lot of ordinary user tiktok who are really using it to share funny videos again with a quite a small circle of people there's not a hope or an expectation that it's going to go out to the whole world whereas twitter i think you know it's raison d'etre was kind of broadcasting to the whole world again people can use it narrowly but but most people who are using Twitter are really trying to get the biggest possible audience on that platform. And so it's default public and, and really geared towards uh, tr- trying to get your content retweeted by other people with large followers and get it out to as big an audience as possible.
0: Yeah. And so, so that's also why it becomes this focal point where we live in this time where there is a ton of uh, attention paid to misinformation, to uh, hate speech, to harmful speech, to all of these different kinds of issues that have to do with free speech. You have the DSA coming, you have the Online Safety Act. And, and now recently, we also saw in the US that there is um, a special government authority being set up to deal with disinformation. Um, That's interesting, isn't it, that that we've talked about the U.S. as being um, less uh, focused on on the content issue, but the Biden administration recently announced that they were going to uh, organize uh, a government body uh, to look at mis- and disinformation as a a core thing for uh, for dealing with, and I think this also comes a little bit in the shadow of the Ukraine war, um, for dealing with um, attacks on, for example, election integrity. So. We, we live in this moment now that seems to be really crunch time for free expression don't we
1: yeah and and again perhaps not <clears throat> not surprising it's the Biden administration that again we keep going we should be candid that mis and disinformation generally <laughs> and there are exceptions but generally are seen to be tools of the right and often the far right or extreme right that that are used and it's the left generally that will end up complaining about them. And, and uh, worrying about them. And it, um, again, we can see that across the piece on the vaccination front. You know, it was seen as uh, you, you sort of saw people generally on the left saying, we're going to take the vaccines, we're going to wear the masks, we're going to do all of that. And then feeling threatened by misinformation coming from people who tend to be political on the right. It's not universal, but as a pattern, it's there, mm-hmm. who are then. You know, publish papers and things questioning the efficacy of vaccines and masks and so on. When it comes to elections, again, yes, generally speaking, it's been people uh, on the left who have who've been complaining that the right is using misinformation to undermine the integrity of the elections and outcomes that they don't like. Um, and I think so, certainly a certain amount of truth to that. If you look at, you know, the the uh, aftermath of the first trump win when hillary clinton lost against expectation you didn't see the democrats you know s- sort of say well it's all the fault of corrupt election officials and then you saw the second trump election and we know exactly what happened after that it you know it was a massive outpouring and after every election i've been involved in elections you always your first reaction is we was robbed you know so the other guys <laughs> must have cheated <laughs> but, but usually you kind of calm down and move on, and you realize it's your wounded pride, and you move on. Uh, and I say, I think the the pattern that we've had this really unusual moment where it, you know that process hasn't followed its normal path, where President Trump and his team would have been expected to whinge about it for a week and move on. No, <laughs> they double down and triple down and quadruple down, and it and it just became the biggest thing, and then you know eventually led to violence in the in the Capitol. Uh, And it's still there. And that's just extraordinary. So, again, it sort of makes it from a political point of view. You do see in that that is a prime example of people from one end of the political spectrum, the right, using misinformation, absolute lies, call them what they are, lies, (laughs) in order Mm -hmm. to advance a false narrative that, you know, supports their view that the election was stolen and doing it in a way that's really quite extraordinary. And then on the other side, you'll get a reaction from those—not all on the left, but generally from those who are opposed to uh, that—who will often be on the left, saying, "You know, we must do something about this because these lies are having real-world consequences. People are dying because of those lies."
0: And and if we take a couple of steps back, it raises a question that we have been—we've been sort of circling around before—and that is, we have made this assumption. And the more free speech you have in a society, the more robust its democracy will be. And uh, that assumption now seems to be something that more and more people are questioning. Uh, There's a recent book by this guy called Richard Hassan, for example, called Cheap Speech, in which he goes back to an article written in the late 1990s by Eugene Volokh. And the, the premise of the article is essentially this. It's becoming cheaper and cheaper to speak you know, speech is becoming cheaper. And as an end result, we should expect that the usefulness of speech, the robustness of democracy generated by speech uh, will actually decline. It doesn't describe a linear curve that just increases over time, but it's more akin to a reversed U-curve where you have a maximum amount of speech that's conducive to a robust democracy. And after that point, when speech becomes too abundant, at least this seems to be the theory, uh, it would actually start to harm democracy. Um, what do you think about that? It's as a thought yeah. experiment. What do you think about yeah. that model?
1: I think it's a, it's a um, fascinating model, and, and it, it, it nicely uses the word cheap in both senses, because I think you said that in that original article, yeah. cheap is was was used in the sense of inexpensive, and that, and we've talked about that. What the internet mm. does is it makes speech inexpensive. It makes it inexpensive to get out to a large audience. Uh, and then the other meaning of cheap, obviously, is, is of low value, worth, worthless. Um, and so, and mm. in, he's actually taken it in both senses. says so yeah, in a sense, the fact that it is now inexpensive to speak has led to cheaper speech in, in the sense of lower value speech in the democratic sphere. And in particular, that, that lower value and tease out the word, but, but less good speech is pushing out and substituting for better speech, Uh, essentially that individuals promoting misinformation, lies, theories, that content is in some way displacing the expensive speech that was expensively written by experts, journalists, people in the media previously. And so I think it's a really interesting framing of of, uh, what may be happening there's also, but in in the in the book and the way that he talks about it, I think there's quite a few things that are quite U.S. specific, and I guess we're sort of exploring that. And perhaps mm. he talked very much about the always very much a reaction to, to what happened in the last couple of U.S. political cycles. And Maybe interesting is again as a thought experiment to sort of compare that with other countries. Like France has just been through a presidential election, which I, I think took place in quite a different. Cultural context, and so some of these things are to do with the cheapness of the speech or the the technology making speech cheap, but quite a lot of the phenomena that we see are actually related to other aspects of the culture in which an election is taking place. It's worth worth sort of pulling those elements out.
0: Hmm. And that, that makes a lot of sense and I do think that he is being he's very centred on the US and on the two elections 2016 2020 elections and he sort of trying to think hard about how we can protect if we can't protect democracy writ large is there at least a way to protect the integrity of elections within uh, the democratic framework and and he's quite unapologetically democrat I think in a lot of his perspective. so it, it's sort of a it is it is a um, it's it's certainly one part of the debate um, trying to understand this and it highlights what you said before about the left perceiving that they are they are sort of less guilty of abusing speech than the right is and there's a tension there that's hard to unpick whether or not that's true if that impression is something that that is sort of borne out by statistics etc we don't know but there is this it is certainly increasingly that seems to be the narrative and it's certainly the narrative that that Hasen works with now what i thought was really interesting was that he, he does a he doesn't discuss speech as an embedded right it's, it's more like he's just assuming that because we can speak freely now and we can speak cheaply now on the Internet, uh, that speech is the same kind of speech that has been defended in democratic theory earlier. It's, sort of, it's this sleight of hand where the speech that John Stuart Mill defends ardently in On Liberty, deeply embedded in the institution of the press, is equated to the speech where I sit in front of my computer and write something on the World Wide Web. But those are completely different institutional contexts. Is, is there something there where we need to go back and sort of re-understand the right of free speech?
1: Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I'm just looking again at the text. And I think we don't often look enough at the text. I think it's European-US comparison is interesting. And actually what I hear across a lot of legislative areas in the internet is Americans on the left Wanting U.S. law to be more European, <laughs> if I can say that, I've probably offended a whole bunch of people <laughs> just there. But but the kind of outcomes they want, you know, across a range of, <laughs> of legislation, that it should be more U- European. And if we look at the foundational text, look, the, the U.S. First Amendment is in a sense a kind of libertarian view of the world. It's it's not it's not a positive assertion or classic sort of positive assertion of the right for expression. It's actually a a, a restriction. <laughs> Placed on the government is expressed as a restriction on what we want government not to do. So, so there is an underlying assumption that we have the right to free speech and, and a fear that government would infringe upon that. And this is written at a time where you know people in the US had had engaged in seditious rebellion against uh, an oppressive government, the British government, um, and that and they they had had to assert their rights to religion, to assembly, to to having a wide range of political opinions. And so what they're saying is, look, now we've got our own Congress. We're going to bind Congress's hands. So we're going to say, Congress, you shall not <laughs> have the ability to legislate, to restrict our freedom of expression, our freedom of religion, et cetera. So it's expressed in this sort of binding Congress way. Uh, and then from that stems a whole bunch of other things. If you look at the corresponding European Convention on Human Rights right, Article 10 of the European Convention on Human Rights, that actually starts with a positive assertion that you do have the freedom to hold opinions and to receive and impart them without without interference. But then goes on to say, but the exercise of these freedoms can be restricted as prescribed by law and for reasons that are necessary in a democratic society, and then lists a whole bunch of, of different reasons, including public safety and national security and so on. So, so that's quite a different way of doing things. It's saying you know, we're giving, we're, we're recognizing that you do have positive right to freedom of expression, but then we're reserving our ability as governments to legislate and take away or chip away at that right or in some way, you know, moderate it. That's the European version, as opposed to the US one, which is as I'd scrub more as a libertarian position. It's saying government back off. You know, just you just can't be in this space. You cannot legislate in this area at all. And I think that's then led to really, really, you know, quite different ways of seeing the world. And what I hear, sometimes from people sort of more on the left in the US, is they almost would be more comfortable with the European version that mm-hmm. there is a generalized right. But there are these things that are in the public interest where that speech is, you know, it's just beyond it's gone too far. It's destabilizing society. And the European language of Article 10 exactly gives you that test. You know, don't restrict a government unless you can prove that the speech is having some kind of harmful effect on society. And here's a list of ways in which you can prove that. And you need to pass that hurdle before you can do the restriction. Having passed the hurdle, you're entitled to restrict US Congress never entitled to restrict <laughs> doesn't matter how bad mm. the speech is
0: and it's 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 quite fascinating because it seems to almost mirror you can imagine having this discussion about the second amendment as well right the right to bear arms right where there's there, there's an analogy they seem to be similar uh, in in the shape that the debate is evolving but, and also the tension between the us and europe right
1: yeah, I mean a lot. So the Bill of Rights, if you look at it, I probably offend a whole bunch of U.S. legal scholars here as well. But but when <laughs> I read it, I, I read it as of its time, and of its time, what it was saying is, look, here's a bunch of ways in which we fear having having liberated ourselves from the the evil British regime, which did restrict all of these things. They they restricted our right to bear arms and to speak freely and to have our own religions. We want to make damn sure that our new government. Is not able to do those things, so it is expressed in as a series of limitations and constraints you're placing on the government, as opposed to, as I say, in the sense sort of asserting positive rights. It's saying, you know, we're, our, our rights are going to be upheld by tying the hands of government, which is very different, completely different, actually, from uh, the way in which the other conventions on human rights are framed. And it's
0: it's in in particular, I think it's interesting because what it does also is that it it ignores the motivation behind the rights, the functionality of the right as such. Because if you're asserting a right positively, then I think at some point you will have to have a discussion about why this right is worth protecting as a fundamental right. But if you're only limiting the ability of the government to restrict that right, then the right is taken for granted. And and that's, of course, a part of the constitutional style of thinking that, that comes over in a lot of the American legislation. I'll just join you in offending a lot of people here. And and I think that, that that's that's interesting because to, to a large degree I think that difference is going to continue to play out between the US and Europe and you can imagine that the European legislation around speech is going to become more and more akin to the European legislation around for example arms or guns it's yes. going to be detailed it's going to be um, quite sort of uh, prescriptive in some places it's going to be focused on harm as you have pointed out before and potential harm whereas the US is going to struggle to do that um, also because they, you know, in their jurisprudence and the case law from the Supreme Court, as Hassan points out in his book, uh, have taken quite a strong stance on protecting the First Amendment. So that's that tension will only increase over time, creating two very different universes of speech, it seems.
1: That's right. And and, and one, uh, I mean, interesting, as you look at them, you know, because the US one is so specifically about binding the government, binding Congress, uh, it, it then... So, sort of doesn't have much to say about private companies. And we have this whole debate with this. The, uh, there's lots of people who sort of do bad, bad First Amendment takes. You'll kind of go, yeah, people kind of go, well, tw- Twitter <laughs> must respect the First Amendment and Facebook must. And then people will come back and go, no, the, the, read, the, read the First Amendment. It talks about Congress. It doesn't say anything about social media companies or anybody else. Uh, it doesn't in any way restrict them. I think arguably the European Convention type rights are much more ready to be rolled over onto private companies uh, than the US one. The US one is very specifically, Congress can't do these things, silent on what private companies can do, and then the debate shifts towards private companies. And in, in, in the Cheap Speech book, a lot of the recommendations are saying, recognising that Congress won't do these things, we need private companies to do them. Come to Europe, and there's there's much more of a view of, look, we need alignment between government, law, and private companies, they all need to operate on the same principle. The same principle being, you have a right to freedom of expression, except that it may be constrained by both government and private companies in order to limit these harms. So if a, if a private company like a Facebook or a Google essentially applied the Section 10 or the Article 10 test in the same way that if they applied the the privacy test. You know The privacy rights in the European Convention say you have a right to privacy, except governments may override that right to privacy in these circumstances. And so really, I think what, what Europeans are doing is saying to companies, we want you to apply consistently the the Article 10 type freedom of expression test uh, uh, in your company rules, just as we will do in our law, and these two can nicely align. In the US, on the other mm-hmm. hand, ain't never going to align because... The law, the public law, isn't interested in carrying out those balancing tests. Freedom of expression except where it causes harm. That's not something that US law does. US law does, you've got freedom of expression. Full stop. <laughs> and and companies <laughs> may apply a test, but that test is going to look very different. It's not, you know, it's not the First Amendment standard in quotes.
0: And it's two mental models. One is that this right is absolutely given and needs no motivation further than that it's given. And universally recognized, and the other model is is much more constructive. It's this is a right that we collaborate to construct. It's it's an institution that we uphold as a society and as a company. You're a part of society. We expect you uh, to uphold this institution. Um, in what you do, just as we as citizens and governments uphold the institution as well, which sort of comes back to this discussion then about the function of the institution. What is it good for? Which is, it's a question that's sort of easier to ask in the European framework than in the the U.S. framework. And and again, we're getting back to this notion of cheap speech and the decoupling of the amount of speech, the, the freedom of speech in a society and its democratic robustness or quality or functionality do do you think that there is just out of curiosity do you think that there is a such a thing as too much speech or do you think that that's asking the wrong question
1: i i, I do think that's the wrong question so i think again that's um I was thinking about this before, and I was thinking of that sort of comparison, say, of the French election cycle and the and the American election cycle, just as a way of trying to tease out whether it's the the speech that's the issue or the platforms that are the issue that that sort of claimed. And I actually think our, our friend Larry Lessig's model again is really really helpful to look at this mm. when you're looking at you know architecture, law, customs or mores, and market forces. Um, and so, if you look at the French election, you know the, the French election was hotly contested. There was a little bit of whinging, I think, from the losing party, but generally everyone sort of moved on and they've accepted that the result as it is. And then you compare that with the US where there's this sort of massive uh, frenzy and, and say, the attack on the Capitol, which is the centre of the cheap speech book. And, and so is it the speech that is different or is it something else that's different? And I actually think it's all of those factors that end up shaping the speech, which does um, cause things to be quite different. So in the US, for example... I think you know that what well, we've already expressed it through the First Amendment, the law is not limiting uh, uh, what people can say in any meaningful way. Um, in in France, the law certainly does limit in a much more meaningful way. I mean, just <laughs> during the election campaign. You cannot buy advertisements in in France, uh, paid for advertisements, because the the law just forbids it. Um, the sort of claims that the U.S. folks were making about you know elected officials and and voting companies, if you made those claims in France, they were a polite expression? They would sue the ass off you. I mean, you wouldn't you know you would touch the ground. You would you'd be in like lots of trouble because there's plenty of law that would allow uh, people to take action. So the laws are very different. The market is very different. Again, candidly, there's a lot more money, I think, to be made in America by pushing, you know, misinformation and things like that uh, out there. There's, there's, um, what's his name? That guy who runs Infowars, Alex Jones, wasn't it? You know, he built, you know, a whole multi-million dollar business out of it. I think it's much harder in France. There's some market. Italy certainly had a market around the Five Star movement, but I think there's less money in it. So the market forces are, I think, a considerable material factor. Um, and then mores re- really quite critical uh and and again, in the book they he does recognize this that it weirdly in the u s by being more you know doggedly partisan you you actually win support whereas in other countries you would lose it so if marine le Pen, having had her initial win she kept going in the same way that the republicans have kept going you know, or Trump's republicans anyway, you know I think the reason they wouldn't have done that is the French people would have told them enough's enough and and I certainly remember going out um yeah, I represent a party that's very anti-Brexit. And I remember going out after the Brexit campaign well over and we were, you know, kind of lobbying to overturn the result and the, it wasn't fair, we were cheated. And you'd knock on the doorsteps, and people say to you, look, I, I hate Brexit as well and I would normally support your party. But as long as you're whinging about the result and trying to overturn it, I'm not going to vote for you because it's fair and square. We should just move on. And again, that's utterly sort of diametrically opposed to the attitude in the US where it seems that to win Republican votes, you you have to you know, keep saying that you think the election was robbed. You don't lose by doing that. You win by doing it. So the mores are fundamentally different. And then the last piece will be the architecture, just literally the architecture of, of uh, the social media platforms and things where, where, in a sense, you know, it's a common architecture for the big platforms between France and the US. Um, yeah, the, the, I don't think the architecture is the determining factor it still has an impact, and a lot of the complaints the French and Europeans have is that an, an American architecture is being imposed upon them. But actually, I say, if you look at those two different worlds, it suggests that we, we shouldn't neglect, we shouldn't take the architecture as determinative. Determinative, and we should very much look at the mores. We should look at the the market, uh, and we should look at the laws as also these critical factors affecting the way that speech goes. So it's not about quantity, it's quality. I think I'm talking about here, but I think the quality of speech is affected by all of those four things. And if you change the quality, which again, I think uh, he's arguing for in cheap speech, if you can, can kind of upgrade the quality, then the, then that's more important, I think, than worrying too much about the quantity.
0: And, and I think another way of, of framing this is to say that uh, if you just look at the two-dimensional relationship between the robustness of a democracy and the amount of speech, you miss all of these other dimensions that you describe. And I think one of them is the institutional embedding that speech needs to exist in a context. It's not too cheap. It's too disembedded and disconnected from the mores or even the architecture in some ways, and as you point out, paradoxically, it's not cheap at all because you can make a lot of money out of it <laughs> yeah. Yeah. so it might have been cheaper to produce, but it's not cheap in the sense of what the market is willing to pay for it so there is there's is another dynamic there so so it's, it's it's and I think it's important to to explore this in depth because if you end up saying there's too much speech then then you're giving yourself a carte blanche to to go back to a few elite arenas where people can speak and just say that these are the arenas where we will have the public conversation or where the public sphere will reside that seems to me to be very limiting and not especially constructive i think the more constructive approach is, is figuring out okay if there is all of this speech here and what is it what kinds of institutions do we need in order to make sure that we can see what's good and what's bad and raise quality to the top it's it's this old metaphor about the marketplace of ideas and having to redesign some of the market mechanisms in order for it to work yeah. together with the mores and the the legislation so so it's um and that brings us back to to Elon Musk. <laughs> let's let's say that you were advising uh, Mr. Musk, which I understand is something that's terribly hard to do, from what I've heard. Uh, but then you were advising Elon Musk on his. Successful purchase of Twitter. It's all been cleared, and yeah. and he just wants to know what what are the three big things I should change about Twitter in the next twelve to eighteen months. Yeah. What's your? I, it's a horrible question. I shouldn't yeah. that on you, but but let's let's well, let's. I, I think it. I
1: would be clear about the identity that you want for the platform, and I would I would really really strongly counsel against this. The, against the idea that you don't have to make choices, I think that's what gets you into trouble. You end up swinging from s- sort of one end of the spectrum to the other because you make a cho- you you think you can satisfy both ends. You get criticized by w- one end, you swing the other direction, you then get reverse criticism, you swing back, and that I think is really harmful. So deciding what you want, and I, I, I thought his statement, "Well, if ten percent of people at either end are equally unhappy, that's actually no." Like that is, you know, that's like that's not deep thinking about the problem. <laughs> that's uh, that's not a great <laughs> place to be. Just, you know, if everybody hates you, that's not a great place to be. I think having your identity. So I think, you know, a liberal Twitter or a conservative Twitter or a libertarian Twitter, like those are clear identities you could have. Uh, but I think you need to kind of pick one, you know, that's that's what you're going to do is decide what kind of identity you want for the platform. and then And then you've pissed off a certain group of people, but I think I think you need to go ahead and do that. So that's one piece of advice. I think you'll get there in the end. I think it's the point that um, so better to sort of do it proactively. Really think through, you know, what is your message? What is it you dislike? You know, do do you, for example, think that you know, there's a hot issue of the day? Are you highly intolerant of um, speech? That trans people feels under, undermines their identity and and is directly personally threatening and psychologically harmful. Like that's it's an interesting sort of case study because it is there's a group of people who, who who really feel very strongly that speech shouldn't be there. So yes or no, like in, you can go through a whole series of different things. Actually, we used to yeah we used to have a. Um, uh, some of the work that we used to do around content standards at Facebook, we'd have a whole series of slides of statements or images and you'd have to say yes or no. And once you've done that yeah. and, and you've figured out yes or no, you now then perhaps can get towards what your identity actually is. So I think be really concrete, yes or no to these things. Get away from these generalities like, well, I piss everyone off equally, that's fine. or you know, um, Just be really clear about where your identity is and what rules you want will, will flow from that. So that's probably lesson one. And then lesson two, uh, or question two, I think, to address is this business model question. Like, are you an advertising platform or not? They're relatively small as an advertising platform compared with the others, but that is pretty much all the money they have made. <laughs> uh, but it doesn't; they don't have to be an advertising platform. They they could be all sorts of things. They could be a data broker, frankly. Um, you know, they already offer fire hoses of data in a way that the the more... Uh, private, shall we say, social networks don't and couldn't do and shouldn't do. Um, so are they a data broker? Are they selling people insights into data trends? Are they a media publisher's platform? There are rumors that he wants to charge people. If it's primarily a broadcast platform, do you yeah. do you charge people to do broadcasting over your platform? So there's a number of different models, but again, be really clear which one it is. And, and there's a risk that they'll sort of sway backwards and forwards between these different models. That's probably lesson number 2 and then lesson number 3 uh, or lesson yeah uh, uh, issue number 3 is decide your position in advance on regulation so if it is the case that you are philosophically opposed to being regulated by the european commission and the uk regulator ofcom then make that decision now and prepare for your exit from those markets <laughs> Uh, um, or if you want to be in there, start building your compliance team now. Start figuring out how you're going to do it. Figure out if you're going to have to sort of partition things off, uh, so that there are, there are separate rules for UK and EU users because you want to apply different ones, more, perhaps more permissive ones to US users. Or are you happy taking the, UK EU standards and rolling them over to your global user base um, because you think US users will also benefit from them. But again, make a clear decision which way you want to go rather than sort of stumbling into it, stumbling out of it, uh, and ending up in trouble. So, three lessons. Uh, uh, What kind of platform do you want to be in terms of content standards? Use some examples to really define that for yourself. What's your identity? What's your business model? Uh, Is it ads or is it something else? And what's your approach to regulatory compliance? Are you going to play the game or do you want to fight it? Do you want to opt out of that game? Uh, And then start planning for that now because it's going to hit you very, very quickly. And then he has to do all of
0: that within a power law framework where 10% of the users produce 80% of the content and have 80% of the followers. So, if, you know, as he remodels this, he really needs to think about who his audience is. Who Who is he designing Sorry. Twitter for? Is it the 10% who actually bring all of the others, who all of the other people follow and who actually, con- you know, build all of these tweets? Or is he trying to build a Twitter, as he has repeatedly said, as a free speech platform? Because that's not, you know, a free speech platform. I'm not sure that's what that is.
1: <laughs> yeah, but I mean, he, he has the option again. At least we going private. There is this obsession with user numbers, in when you're a public company, so he has the option of losing users, <laughs> uh, which 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 is very yeah. hard for public companies to do. And and there is the option again. I how do we feel about this from a, a free speech point of view? But he has the option of saying, look. You can pay to speak, but you can listen for free. Uh, and so you can yeah. be a Twitter user, but if you want that, if you want the right to speak on the platform, at that point you have to start paying me money. And maybe the more you speak and the more audience you have, the more you pay me. There's something in there. Not free. It's free in one sense, as in anybody with money. <laughs> if it, it could be free in the sense of you've got the hmm. money. You can speak, uh, but it ain't free in the other sense of uh, you know there being there is a, a sort of cash barrier paywall for the speaker rather than the reader that he would erect. Again, inter- I mean, it's conceptually that worth modeling. And
0: would neatly and solve the problem of and it would neatly solve the problem of cheap speech too because it wouldn't be cheap
1: anymore. <laughs> it wouldn't be cheap anymore, and and the Russian bots unless the it's Russian bot track. farms, you know, wanted to pay him a lot of money. So uh, we're getting some weird situation maybe in rubles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, they wouldn't be able to pay (laughs) at the moment. They'd be, they'd be sanctioned. So, but you, you'd, um, you'd certainly, you know, that, you get rid of that phenomenon. But yeah, you end up in some weird world where, yeah, Europeans are buying Russian gas and oil to send money there so that the Russian government can spend it on bot farms who send the money back to Elon Musk and Twitter.
0: Yeah. You could not make this stuff up. up. You could not make this stuff up. Oh, well. Um, Thank you for this. I think we will conclude by saying that it's certainly going to be exciting times ahead and tracking closely where Twitter uh, is evolving, is going to, I think, impact a lot of the free speech discussion, and that's why we're so focused on it. Um, So uh, you can find this episode on your
1: website, which is? www.regulate.tech
0: Perfect. And thank you, anyone, everyone, for uh, d- tuning in. And uh, we hope that you will be with us next time.